This is my conversation with Roderick Graham, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Old Dominion University of Norfolk, Virginia. He holds a PhD in sociology from the City University of New York Graduate Center. Dr. Graham's academic work focuses on cybercrime and online deviant behavior. He also enjoys communicating sociological insights to the public as the neighborhood sociologist with a particular interest in discussing race, class, and crime issues. Uh, hi, Roderick. Uh, you're an associate professor of sociology and criminal justice. So we, this is a very interesting background, specifically for someone coming from the Middle East, where I'm based. Uh, how did you start and like what got you interested in this? Uh, well, um in my first life, I was a, a high school biology teacher. And um, I mean, it was fine. I, I enjoyed it. But I realized that I was more interested. First of all, I like learning. And then I was more interested in uh, social issues. And um, it was kind of luck. I was like, well, what what else can I do with my life? And I just I just applied to the, the local um, graduate program in, in sociology. It could have been, at that time, it could have been psychology, it could have been economics or, or something, but it just ended up being uh, sociology and uh, it was a good decision. Why do you think it was a good decision? Well, I love it. I mean, it's it's kind of like uh, my calling. If I would have tried to think about social issues through an economic lens, I don't know if I would have been as fulfilled um, or psychology or anthropology, any of the other social sciences could have gotten me to where I was talking about things that I care about. But I don't know. I, I think um, the ideas and theories in, in sociology are most uh, interesting to me. And uh, and so, yeah, it was a, a good decision. Do you think that this field is growing as, uh, you know, our culture progresses and gets more complex? No. I do not. <laughs> Why? Uh, you, you're talking about uh, sociology, right? Uh, yes. Is sociology growing? No, I mean, um, for at least in the uh, in the states, it is. I don't think it is, and uh, there's some pretty, to me, clear reasons why. So, one reason is that um, people are interested um, in in something that can get them employment, and um, and so as more and more people go to to university. Uh, we're finding that um, you don't have the, the the type of person who might say, well, I'm, I'm doing this primarily for uh, the knowledge that I can acquire, and then maybe I'll find a job uh, later. That's, that's sort of reserved for middle class and upper middle class uh, people, uh, it seems to me. And so that's what sociology offers. Of course, you can get work in, and if you get a PhD in something, uh, you're, you're highly skilled. But it's not like majoring in computer science or business or accounting or nursing or any of those things. So I don't think that the the uh, um, um, discipline is growing. I don't think it's necessarily shrinking, but it's not growing. And then another reason, um, again, this might be unique to uh, the United States, is that um, the American right tends to uh, be be uh, somewhat hostile to social sciences in general, and especially uh, social sciences where um, the talk is often on on uh, race issues. Uh, and even class issues, right? So you get labeled as a socialist or Marxist and stuff, and stuff. And so a lot of potential students will won't even consider this this type of uh, field. Why is there so much pressure against sociology, from, especially from the right? Uh, is there a specific reason they feel like this needs to be like capped to a certain degree? 
Um, why is there pressure from the right? Yeah. Well, I mean, in a broad sense, I think at least since the 1960s, um, uh, the right has has found academia problematic because they see it as very liberal, which is true. A lot of a lot of um, people who are liberal or have a, a leftist dispositions, they tend to gravitate to education. They tend to get more um, graduate degrees and then they tend to eventually be professors. So that is a, a correct statement. Uh, and so, well, I mean, if you're, if uh, an institution is populated by people who have different um, political views than you, then you're gonna be a bit hostile to the ideas they produce. Um, that's one thing. And then, and then with sociology in general, also with things like gender studies, um, uh, ethnic studies like African-American studies, Hispanic studies. These are fields that are seen as being highly critical of society and arguing for the platforming of minorities, gender uh, gender studies, women's studies. And so, and, and now uh, even queer studies. And so that also is very problematic uh, for, for people on the right. Uh, speaking of gender studies, racial issues, uh, uh, queer studies, uh, there is a lot of pushback a lot of people go like okay you know what like this is something that doesn't need to be studied but mm -hmm. like you you would say otherwise why is there first of all a need for studying it let's let's go back to basics and say okay from your perspective why is it important because it's phenomena so uh the so i mean if, if you take a very utilitarian view of education then a person may say, well, the purpose of education is to train someone for the labor market. Hmm. And, and so, okay, in that case, then you, you, you see an industry that needs workers. So then you train the person going into university uh, to fill jobs in that industry, which of course means that ethnic studies is irrelevant. However, uh, or, or gender studies, which is what we're using here. Uh, hmm. But all of those are kind of fit in this, in this realm. So, okay, but then um, another purpose of education is to expand our knowledge uh, uh, of things. And particularly in universities is to create new knowledge. So, so, so we know that, that there are people who um, may say that they're on a gender spectrum. We know that gender matters in society. So that's a phenomenon we're studying. And so that in itself is reason uh, to have a discipline like gender studies and also uh, people like it. Um, it, it's not a growing uh, discipline, but I mean, look, students take the classes, they major in it. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so. How do you feel like, you know, uh, intersection of race, class and gender impacts the criminal justice system? Uh, well, uh, the, the, the standard approach, which I agree with, is, is to argue that uh, minorities, uh, in this case, racial minorities, not necessarily women uh, in the criminal justice system, but racial minorities tend to be, um, insofar as um, uh, American policing tends to be uh, hyper-aggressive, a bit too militaristic, um, they visit that violence more so on people of color and and, and poor people. Um, and so that, that, that's sort of how a lot of people uh, who are critical of of our policing and criminal justice system see it. And I agree with that. Um, women, I don't know. I actually saw some recent data where, um, first off in general, women are are uh, have, are given uh, lighter penalties for the same uh, crime um, in the US. 
And um, they're also less likely to enter into the criminal justice system. They're, when they're less I, when I mean, to commit sorry to interrupt you, but when I mean gender, mm -hmm. I mean LGBTQ, uh, not specifically to men and women. So mm -hmm. how uh, is that different? Um, different from... For it's like, okay, a white male. Well, um, I mean... Individuals who are are queer um, may run may run into problems with the criminal justice system because uh, they they may be stigmatized. But as far as any data on um, whether or not they're more likely to be arrested, or convicted, or be in the prison in, in the criminal justice system, I'm not entirely sure. There's no data out there to be able to like you know at least understand and like decipher how it is. Oh, there may be. I I just am not aware of it. Okay, let's go the, back the, the, to sorry. No, I was I was going to say that the, one of the problematic issues that we're dealing with is the fact that because uh, people who are queer are stigmatized, they have high levels of of depression and more and suicidal ideation uh, and suicide attempts, and that's something that we need to to deal with. Um, but contact with uh with police and the criminal justice system, I don't have any data on that. Okay, let's go back to. Black specifically targeted by the police. What's the history behind it? And why is this the case? You know, I think starting in like the 19, the late 1960s, the uh, American policing changed quite a bit. So in the 60s, you know, about the civil rights movement and arguing for uh, equality, um, legal uh, equality well, between black and white. We can even say between white and people of color because other, other groups were... Uh, discriminated against too. So um, we, we had that movement in the 60s. And then in the late 60s, um, in Black communities, there was some frustration that change was coming uh, too slowly. And there were a lot of, of riots. Uh, and um, LA, uh, Watts, a community in Watts, was one of the most notable, also in Detroit, also in New Jersey. And so this was at a unique time. Uh, I think those riots happened in maybe 1967 or so. And we had a presidential election in 1968. And the um, Republican candidate, Richard Nixon, ran on this kind of sort of law and order type thing. And um, so, um, yeah, well, oh, yeah. So, so Richard Nixon um, ran on a law and order um, a ticket. Uh, and and so he he started to... Uh, push this like being tough on these communities uh, that that were rioting, and I mean there was some justification for that because you needed to protect people in those communities as well. But it was also the case that uh, Republicans at that time could really energize their voting base with the law and order, uh, with law and order uh, rhetoric, and also passing uh, legislation that further armed police, gave them more resources and even um, changed uh, laws a little bit to make it easier for police to uh, investigate crimes and arrest people. So that's where it started, the change in policing. And it continued, not just, so I'm talking a lot about um, conservative politicians, but it's also eventually uh, leftist politicians realized that, hey, this is a good way uh, to show, uh, to, to gain support from centrists by being tough on crime. So you had Nixon in the seven in the 60s and 70s who were uh, pushing this sort of rhetoric, Reagan in the 80s, and then Bush in the 90s, I believe, early 90s, first George Bush, 
um, passed legislation, pushed for and passed legislation, which made it possible for American police to get surplus military uh, equipment to use. So, so you get the, which seems, which may seem odd to someone who's not in the United States. I don't know, but you have these uh, police in these armored vehicles driving down streets and and um, having you know assault rifles and rifles with bayonets and using tear gas and flash grenades, which, which is sort of this military equipment. And the rationale for that ultimately is about, well, I should say, the well, the rationale is tough on crime, but I think the, the rhetoric and the symbols are, you've got a lot of crime in these black and brown communities. And so we need to do something about that. And so many people, including even the uh, uh, people who call themselves, supported those uh, policies. And this continued well up until uh, I would say maybe the the uh, the early 2010s when, when when we sort of started seeing that this was a mistake, this over policing. But it's still the case that we have a very aggressive um, police force, and that aggression is visited more often in Black and Brown communities. How is it right now? What is the political climate in terms of criminal justice, especially towards the marginalized communities? What is the environment that we are living in right now? Well, surveys uh, suggest that, that first off, Black people were always a little uh, antagonistic towards police, and they had good reason to. Um, but I think in the past several years, maybe in the past 10 years or so, one, we've changed our uh, laws when it comes to um, imprisoning people. Our prison population is finally going down, which is nice. It it really skyrocketed starting in the 70s up to a peak of about 1.6 or 7 million people. I don't know, about 2008 or so, but now it's starting to go down. So that's good. And people support that across the board, left and right. Also, because of all of these very visible incidents of police brutality, you also see support for changes in policing across the board. Now on the right, uh, of course they they are not going to be as, um, they, they want change, but, but they may see it as a sort of bad apples or certain precincts that are problematic uh, or something, or they would support like the, the use of body cams, uh, body cameras, uh, police accountability. Whereas on the left, uh, they support that as well. But I think also they, they're, they're thinking of more systematic changes, even to the point of even, defunding police departments um, and shrinking them drastically. But overall, there, there has been, I think, a, a positive change uh, in, in, in how Americans see policing. Then there's this been recent case of Tyra Nichols uh, mm -hmm. with, and the protests. Can you speak a little bit about that? Like what has happened to someone who has no clue? Because people globally, not everybody knows about it. Can you go back to where it started, what's happening and what's the current status? That is an interesting um, um, case. So um, what we usually see uh, in the media is a white cop who has, uh, like the George Floyd uh, uh, killing, a white cop who, who kills a, a black suspect and it's seen as being unfair. There's too much, um, it, it was just a disproportionate use of violence. It wasn't necessary. In this case, which is in, a mid-sized city in the United States, uh, Memphis, uh, Tennessee, which is majority black. Um, I think the mayor is black. Certainly the police captain is black. And the the, the five police officers who uh, beat Tyree Nichols to death, uh, uh, they were black. 
And so Nichols was stopped at a at a traffic stop uh, or, or stopped because of reckless driving. So it was a traffic stop. And from what I can understand, um, Nichols, uh, actually, I, I don't want to be misquoted or, or, or misstate the facts. I think Nichols started to run or there was a disagreement or something. I'm not entirely sure. I wish I knew. I, I should have known you. You told me that we were going to talk about this. In any case, um, what what did happen though was that was that the police ended up attacking Nichols and and beating him uh, severely, and then he died uh, in the hospital. And because uh, this this was just uh, just outlandish, like whatever the the young man had done, and this is a young black male, um, he it, it was not justifiable for for five police to to beat him physically. To the point where he eventually died in, in in the hospital, and we have body cam footage of it, and we have audio of it. So it's clearly uh, an overstep by these police, and and they were um, they were fired. And um, most people agree that that that's that's problematic. What's interesting is the fact that this is these were black police officers. This was in a, a majority black city with black leaders, and so people are arguing uh, that this is not an example of racism because of this uh because of this all black dynamic i think that's incorrect um for the reasons that i mentioned earlier uh you have institutional or systemic problems such that these types of offenses doesn't matter if the police are black or white these types of um incidents happen in black and poor communities far more often than in wealthy and white communities. So you could say that, okay, yes, the uh, the, uh, the police were black. And so, I mean, how can you say this is racial? But they're still working in that system, which is a racialized system that mistreats black people. Do you feel like over a period of time working in the police system that's system systemically racist, that you end up, even though being black yourself, looking through the lens of racism, where you automatically see someone black in a black community, and then your radar goes up, or you respond in a very dramatic manner, rather than if you were in a white community? Absolutely. And this is where I like sociology so much. <laughs> I used to think, I used to think um, in, a, in very individualistic terms, I think, I think uh, as Americans, we're hyper individualistic anyway. And so, um, and so I, you know, I would have been the person, let's say I was in my uh, mid to late twenties, who would have just looked at individuals like, okay, this is an individual person who has some bad attitudes or, or something. And that's what matters. And, and not necessarily think about the structure in which we live in. And how that influences what happens, and and um, it doesn't matter if the person is black or white. Uh, what matters is is what are the norms inside of an institution? What are the patterns that develop over time? So if you have if you have a police, let let's say you're a young uh, person just entering into the police force, you're gonna you're gonna adopt many of the patterns that you see of your superior officers. And so if if over time there develops this understanding that, okay, we need to be more aggressive in these communities or even, or even um, oh yes, more aggressive in these communities or, or, or less aggressive in others, you're going to start adopting those norms, values, and beliefs. And so it, it just becomes a cycle over time. It's also embedded in the practices of that institution or the policies, I should say. So in policing, there's a uh, periodic study done by the Department of Justice where they survey the police academies and um, whoever's qualified to answer the, the question in those academies, uh, 
they answer questions about what police are taught, what they're trained in at the academy. And so I wrote a piece um, um, a year ago about this where, I mean, and if you look at how much time is spent on training police to be aggressive, um, it's like 85% of their of their training, of the 800 or so hours of police academy training, about 80, 80 to 85% of that time is spent on um, um, learning maybe the law, but also on the use of violence. Whereas only a small percentage of time is spent on nonviolent tactics or de-escalation tactics. So here you've got a system of violence workers, which is a good way of describing uh, police, I believe, a system of a, a, an institution of violence workers. And then you combine that with a culture that began in the 60s or 70s, a very racialized culture where, okay, this is a black neighborhood. Uh, these folks need to be treated a certain way. Um, and then there's a white neighborhood. Well, okay, they're rich, they're white over here. And then, then you know, we can take a different approach. So you've got these two things that come together and then you, you get these instances with Tyree Nichols all the time. And so it doesn't matter the individuals uh, really. Um, they're just a sort of second order problem. But the real problem is the culture and the institutions of policing in the United States. So what role does a riot play in these things where people come say Black Lives Matter or like, you know, there are people protesting on the streets and looking from an outsider, I'm not American, I'm not uh, living there, but I keep seeing these riots happening. It's periodic every, you know, like over a period of time. Same thing goes with gun violence. Mm -hmm. uh, there's school shootings, people are like, people are killed. There's some pushback, people are right, their rights, people are like clearly frustrated with the system, but nothing seems to happen. So it's always grinds to a halt. And do you see, what's the future look like? Is this gonna be the case forever? And like people are not gonna be, marginalized communities are gonna be ignored? Well, I have, I'm a little positive on this. I, th I think that uh, as younger generations uh, um, start to mature into positions of authority and influence, that will that will sort of push along some change in how we think about uh, policing and race race and racism in the United States in general. Um, I I think that people who are a little bit older, maybe my age and older, so I'm in I'm 47 now. We, we sort of grew up in a time of, okay, uh, law and order, um, you know, you need to comply with police and com com police are these authority figures and, um, you know, just follow the rules and, and it's fine. And, 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 and there's some good aspects of that, but I think younger people are less likely to be so compliant and they're, they're starting to understand that, okay, yes, we need, we need police. But we need to also understand that citizens, you know, can't be, can't be, um, you know, at traffic stops, they, they regardless of, of how they, you know, talk to police, regardless of how they talk to police, um, they, they shouldn't be tased or beaten with billy clubs or shot. Um, I think young younger people are quite aware of this. So so um I think over time when those people get in positions of power, they become the primary voters, uh, you will see a change. Police, I'm sorry, uh, politicians won't be able to run so easily. I guess this is the better way of talking about it. Run so easily on a tough on crime, law on order, law and order ticket, because the voters won't be as interested uh, in that type of thing. Now things could change. We could have a, a tremendous crime spike. Um, anything could happen, you know. But uh, the way the trends are right now, I'm, I'm quite positive in 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 changes. You asked about um, rioting, um, and I. 
So if, I, if I'm positive about changes in police, I'm actually not as positive about the impact of, of, of riots uh, or protests even. Um, I, you know, the, the justification for, pro, so there's, to me, there's no justification for, for riots. Uh, I, I, I guess someone could be sympathetic and say that it's, I think Martin Luther King said that riots are the language of, uh, of the unheard, mm. meaning, okay, people are lashing out because no one is listening to them. I think I think that may have been appropriate for his time, but I don't, don't know now. I think I think some of writing is just opportunism. Um, peaceful people, peaceful people are protesting, and then you have people who come along and take advantage of that. So that that's kind of how I see the riots. But protests, the logic behind them, um, in a democratic society where the, the the media is such an important part of it uh, in in molding public opinion, the logic behind it, right up. Uh, riots around protests are sound. And that is that <clears throat> you have this showing in the public of discontent. The media covers it and now it becomes a national issue. And that's what happened. And so now people have to talk about it. Maybe um, lawmakers have to address it. People can run and try and get into position of power by being avatars of people in that movement, right? So you could say, well, I'm 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 running on changing police brutality and stuff, uh, or reducing police brutality. So so right, uh, I keep saying riots. I don't know why I'm mixing you know, riots and <laughs> protests. So protests are are um are, have been uh, historically beneficial, but I don't know. I I think these days uh, in a media saturated environment where at least in the US, uh, politicians tend to cater more towards the wealthy uh, and don't necessarily uh, worry so much about popular about popular opinion. Hmm. It, it may not be as uh, powerful as it used to be. Can you give us examples of when like protests, not riots, have actually made changes in the criminal justice reform uh, efforts? Uh, has there been actual changes like that can be seen and measured? Oh, I don't know. Not in recent memory. After the George Floyd protests, after his murder in the protests, there was a lot of grassroots efforts to um, what what's being called defund the police, which which means, which is good actually uh, in in some ways. The the idea with the defund police movement is not necessarily to just, uh, although some would say abolish police, but I think for most people, including myself. The idea is that, okay, police are violence workers. So they really just need to focus on using violence in situations where there is potential violence going on. But for things like traffic stops, uh, um, you know, welfare checks, dealing with homeless people, you don't really need police for that. You don't need, you don't, you don't need. So instead of building a police force to try and uh, take care of all of these issues, which all need to be taken care of, uh, we should we should maybe diversify and and have violence workers deal with violence. So that would be like an armed robbery or something like that, right? Um, and then have other types of workers, social service workers, deal with these other sort of uh, uh, public issues of mental health and and um, and homelessness and and domestic uh, issues and stuff. And so there was uh, some um, push for that, however. Um, conservatives generally don't like this idea. They like some type of police reform, but not necessarily this. They see it as uh, being uh, somewhat dangerous. I mean, you're taking cops off the street, crime is going to go up. I mean, there's some 
some uh, very, uh, you know, rudimentary logic to that so I can kind of understand it. And so they, they sort of demonized this idea of defund the police. So the, the push that came from the George Floyd protests, uh, I have not seen uh, too much yet. I think the change will come in generations to come, but but not necessarily uh, immediately. And um, I don't know. Um, I don't know if there are other instances where protests um, have really pushed the needle politically. I'm not entirely sure. And and a lot of it is just because we're just in a different media environment. I mean, yeah, they'll get on they'll get on a, a major news network. People will talk about it. Um, but it it doesn't lead to it doesn't lead to change. Uh, I mean, I wasn't around in the 1960s, but from what I've read and, and what I understand, these civil rights protests really meant change. Like it led to direct changes in legislation at a federal level. I have not seen that uh, in the United States recently. Now, now maybe someone can you know someone hears this and says, well, you know, you're not thinking about this. It's possible. But in my mind, no, I, I, I don't see a, a direct correlation between protests and, and change. What recommendations would you give in terms of policy changes that you believe would lead to a, a more like just criminal system? Like I was like, you know, do this, this, this. These are my recommendations that I think things would like, you know, push the needle further. Well, I do like some elements of the defund the police um, movement. I, I do. I, I think that... Um, and, and I think even police will tell you that so much of their time is spent doing these routine traffic stops, you know, you know, uh, uh, like um, speeding violations, uh, removing homeless people, addressing uh, someone who's mentally ill, um, loitering, like, and, and those are things that need to be addressed. Uh, that, that's a sort of what I would call like a, a, a sort of a social health of society. So you need to kind of do something about that. But to me, I would make it so that I would I wouldn't I would provide funding for people trained just for that. So that way a person who is who who is who is sent out to deal with someone who has mental health issues, their response is not to use a taser or a gun. That they, they would have other ways of dealing with that situation. So I, I think that's one approach. And then also, I mean, uh the, the training. Uh, you have a a a, uh, a police academy system that does train explicitly for violence. And I think that we need to find ways to move away from that. And then also, um, I was, uh, so so where, where I teach, we have a, a criminal justice uh, doctoral program. And so a few years back, we had a former police officer who decided to get her PhD. And uh, she made a point that I thought, I just never thought of before. And it was that the type of people that we recruit also leads to uh, a more violent police force, a more aggressive police force. So the advertisements sort of rely on these militaristic connotations that they tend to recruit and they tend to recruit people from the military. And I I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that works, but, but she was pointing out that those are the, those are the folks who end up going into policing and so that that also means that you got people with certain dispositions uh, who are who are more likely uh, to uh, use violence when maybe it's not necessary. And so I don't know, maybe even recruiting uh, could be um, changed in a way. 
what do you how do you see technology and data impacting criminal justice systems because i recently spoke to derek lieben and we were speaking about how ai is calculating data getting information and then basing that to like you know come up with policy come up with information and we come from a very racist background system where everything was you know like predominantly for white males they people were marginalized and so ai is picking up on that data and learning from that so we have to in a way humans need to come in and like intervene to make sure that like it's not biased mm-hmm. how do you yeah. see technology and data impacting it overall i'm a fan of it um i think that many of my colleagues are not uh for the reasons that 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 you just mentioned that that algorithm algorithms can be biased because of the people who make them and also because they use they use prior data. So an example would be, um, so so I'll, I'll give their argument and then I'll, I'll give mine. So um, so the idea here is a, is a sort of predictive policing where what you do, and it's, it's not illogical actually. I mean, I, 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 I can see um, uh, the good in it. So, so but, but first, let, let, let me give the critique of this. So, so the idea of predictive policing is that you take data historically about where crimes occurred, and then you place police in that area um, under the assumption that crimes are likely to occur there again. So uh, it's 2023. So maybe uh, July 2022, there was a parade or something. Now, now you, you don't know the always the external factors of why a crimes occur at certain times. Um, but let's just say that there was a parade or something. And for whatever reason, you know, there was uh, less uh, people around or uh, in certain areas. And so so you find that in, certain, in a certain part of town where everyone went to the parade, um, there's a lot of robberies over there. All right. Well, uh, it might be in the data, you don't see all of that historical justification, but you know that at that time and space, a lot of robberies happen. So the logic would be, all right, that happened in 2022. So let's place police there in 2023. Um, or not, yeah, in 2023. Okay, that is not bad, actually. That, that's a that, that's a pretty uh, good way of, of thinking about it to me. But the critics would say, hmm, because historically we have over-policed certain communities, we know about crimes in those communities. So yeah, maybe in the case of the of the of the robberies, that's good. But what about the fact that in 2022, police were just patrolling black neighborhoods and stopping people for all, all types of things, and they and they put that in the system. And so now police are going to go back there in 2023. But we know that in white communities, in in, in wealthy communities, they are committing similar crimes, but because police haven't been going there in the past, um, we don't know it. So, so, so we know, so, so, so there's been a lot of studies about drugs, drug usage. And so we know that it's equal or greater in um, suburban white neighborhoods, but because police haven't been there, there are no arrests. So, so we get the data from surveys and whatnot, but not from police data. So if police use historical data in their algorithms, it's gonna reproduce the same uh, race, racist practices that um, that have gone on historically. That's the argument against it. It's not bad, right? It's, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, um, I say that, you know, that is true, but because algorithms can be, um, if they're not proprietary, we can look at what's happening. We can tweak that. 
it's it it could be far more transparent. Now there's a problem in that a lot of the um, a lot of the technology that's used in predictive policing, uh, mainly the algorithms, but also the software, is proprietary. So someone is selling that to a police uh, um, department. And of course, they don't want people to know what goes on underneath the hood. So we can't critique that algorithm and make changes. But what if we could? What if what if we if 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 it was such that a public institution, which I would be strongly in favor of, could only use algorithms that were made public? Then we can critique how police or where police are going. And I think that is the best of all outcomes. Because if you don't use algorithms and you keep it in this sort of, okay, this is what we're doing in the, you know, the, the police chief says, all right, well, we need to go here because of that. And it, and it becomes something of a human, just human judgment, then you, that's just going to also create bias. And you can't deal with that bias because it's in the heads of the person. Yeah. But if you have the bias in the algorithm, then at least you could look at it and possibly make a change. So I guess to make a long story short, uh, it's problematic, but I think in the future, that's the best way to go. What are the challenges are you facing in your work specifically when it comes to sociology of criminal justice like you said your colleagues don't agree with this what other things do they not agree with or you feel like you know this is a big hurdle that you know the whole community is facing well for my colleagues a lot of them are critical social sciences science scientists and so they 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 would have a a problem with it with this with policing in general more so than i do and i am actually not that type of social scientist i'm more of the old traditional, you know, collect some data, test a hypothesis and whatnot. And, and so um, so that in a way also kind of pushes, I wouldn't say it's a problematic thing. It's more of a difference in perspective. And so critical scholars will have a lot of problems with algorithms uh, because it's they, they would argue that this is sort of assuming there's some objectivity and it's not. And, and so there needs to be better ways of dealing with these with these issues of policing. They, they I agree with him. There's a problem with policing. It's just I just have a different approach. Uh, that's all to uh, social science, and so it it um, it leads me in a different direction. Um, but other than that, I don't have many problems with my uh, with sociologists in general or uh, or my or my colleagues. <laughs> so, but yeah. How does media representation uh, and shaping public's perception of crime and justice like? How does it? What role does it play overall? Well, um, I think then that uh, both um, mainstream media and then also social media, I want to put all those together. We have a problem of what I would call, well, there are two problems. There's a, there's a sampling bias problem. Uh, and then there's also, a, um, I don't know, maybe a narrative problem. But, but let me talk through the sampling bias problem first. That's a bit more clear in my head. So there are trends that we can look at. There are there are facts that um, we can we can see as 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 true, like crime rates. Uh, we can look at disparities in stops and arrests, and we can look at disparities in sentencing. Even we haven't talked a whole lot about that. We talk more about the police angle, not necessarily the uh, the law part of it and corrections. But we can see those disparities, and I, I think those are the things that we need to focus on. But what what police will do? not police, what the media will do is sample instances to create a narrative. I guess that's how they, it kind of goes together, the sampling, the narrative. Sample instances because they need eyeballs. 
roles. They need engagement. And so they, they sample instances. For example, with the with the George Floyd um, killing in the, uh, the movement, it is actually not true, as far as I understand it, that um, Black people are killed at higher rates. It's the last data I saw. But people, you know, you need many studies and you know, people are going to come out with a lot more and, and maybe I'm wrong about that. But um, what I have seen is that when it comes to um, the death of citizens by police, there is no racial disparity. And so you get, and so the media will focus on these cases where, especially a white person. So you get a white person, a white police officer killing a black person. That gets all the news. When in reality, it's a it's a larger policing problem. Both just the the, color, the problematic color is actually blue, not necessarily black or white. Hmm. Uh, and it's 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 more about yeah, and it's more about the everyday interactions that police have with citizens that create most of the resentment. Now I get it. If someone dies, you, that you have, that's a more, more urgent thing to talk about. Like Tyree Nichols is dead, and his family has to deal with that. So I, I I get the fact that you want to cover that. That is a newsworthy story. Um, but then we forget about the the underlying trends and what's really powering all of that, and that gets lost. And so and so in some ways, I hold the media couple. I mean, they they, I mean, they're they're a business, right? So they have to do that, but they don't do a good job of informing citizens with nuance and facts. And how does social media you, play in are this? Are you there? Context? Yes. Um, I can hear you, but I'm... Okay. Could you say that again? I'm sorry. I, I... Okay. I, I was just saying... Yeah. Uh, Could you... How... Can you hear me now? Okay. I just was saying then. So yes, how does yes. social media play in this whole uh, game? Like, okay, I know media is uh, like over uh, covering one specific thing because, of course, it is pertinent to the time and it's very topical. But then social media is controlled by okay a certain certain times the algorithm, but also what we like, what we share. So you were saying that uh, what role does social media have? Yes. Okay. Um, well, uh, yeah, there there's a lot of problems with um, with what we might call uh, filter bubbles. Um, people seeing things that um, sort of you know, reinforce what they already believe. And I think maybe that is one of the ways. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I think someone who, who studies the algorithms and social, social media can say a little bit more. But my general sense is that social media allows us to ensconce ourselves in our own political cubby holes, as it were. So we can only see, or we can only, um, or we only listen to what, already confirms our biases or our understandings of the world. And um, I'm not entirely sure what, what can be done about that. Maybe public education, but it's just very difficult. Uh, I mean, I'm on social media a lot, actually probably too much, I should be doing my work, but I'm on Twitter a lot and replying to people a lot. And it's almost like you're talking to people in completely different worlds. Um, and, you know, the media gives us a, a sort of, uh, a false narrative and then social media sort of reinforces it. So you've got really two tribes in the in the United States, uh, left and right. Um, it, it's no longer, you know, I'm a person, this is very unfortunate and I worry about this quite a bit. It's no longer that I vote Democrat, but 
I'm also a Southerner. I'm also a, a Catholic. I'm also blah 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 blah. And and so that means and so you have these cross cutting allegiances, allegiances and identities, which can allow for a kind of cohesion like a quilt. What you've got now though is, I am a conservative, and that's all that matters. <laughs> and and I am a progressive or liberal, and that's all that matters. And so you've got like these two separate groups, and they consume they're consuming different media, and very much consuming uh, different media on 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 like a social media like Twitter or something. And it just reinforce it's just a it just creates a very hyper polarized environment where people don't live in the same reality. Um, and I'm going to try and bring in a little a little sociology here uh, if I can. So I, one of the main tenets of sociology is that our world is socially constructed. And so whatever the reality is out there, we come to understand it through communication with significant others and through what our our, our institutions, particularly the media, tells us. And now even social media, we can say. And so, and so when people communicate with others just like them and consume uh, media that reinforces their opinions and is very different than another group, you really have you really have two worlds that are constructed. I'm sorry about that. You really have two separate worlds that are uh, constructed differently. And so to, to put it back in the context of, of policing and, and Black Lives Matter and all that stuff, one world has it Right, so let's say the, the 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 tribe on the right, they see things in a completely different way, such that well, um, policing is okay. We need to change a little bit uh, here and there. But finally, the the real issue here is the is the black riders, and if you and if you watch, if you watch uh, 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 news media from the right, or you see it on on Twitter, that is the reality of what's going on. It's not about Tyree Nichols uh, dying or any of these other uh, uh, deaths. It's about the rioting or even um, the focus would be on this organization called Black Lives Matter and the amount of money that um, the leaders of that organization have has amassed over the past couple of years because of the donations hmm. from people. Uh, and so that becomes the stories and that's what they talk about. No discussion. Like like zero <laughs> discussion about uh, Tyree Nichols and the families and and how this impacts the black communities at all. I don't think it's because um, an individual person who identifies as conservative is is that callous. Hmm. I, I don't. But I think it's because the media that they consume creates that reality that that is what is important. That's what we need to talk about and so on. Meanwhile, on the left, which I am on, I'm on the left. The media wants to paint a narrative of rampant racist cops going around indiscriminately killing uh, or being very aggressive towards um, towards black and brown people. Such that if you, you know, I've seen like surveys of, of people who, you know, you, they ask, you know, you know, how many black people are killed by police as opposed to white people or, or, or this kind of thing. And it's like these hyperinflated understandings of reality, but it's because of the media and, and the things that they're taking in. It gets reinforced constantly because if you're on social media, all of your friends are, are on the left. And so they think the same way and you're sharing the same ideas. It's just a horrible, horrible situation. Now, I'm not, I actually don't want to both sides that actually. I do think that people on the right tend to 
uh, believe conspiracy theories a little bit more. They tend to believe that the election was stolen. I mean, it, it's much, you know, it's, I think it's much worse on the right, but both, but both tribes, as it were, live in different realities. And it makes it very difficult for us to have real conversations. And the media is culpable in that. So how do you approach teaching and educating students on such complex issues without like, again, making them feel like your information is biased or you're coming from an mm-hmm. approach where you want them to think a certain way, yet get the right information? Oh, that's very interesting. I just taught a class last, last week on research methods where, <laughs> where, I, where I addressed this, uh, this, this issue. So I think the old school approach would be to not let students know your particular biases um, and keep that, you know, you're the neutral teacher and you're just relaying information. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't do that, actually. Um, I Instead, I, I make it known um, how I how I see the world and the things that I'm interested in so that way students, you know, they can evaluate what I'm saying it's, instead of me, you know, acting like I'm this neutral person and I'm not and subtly bending them in a certain direction. I'll tell them, OK, you know, I tend to vote, not tend to, I vote on the on on the left for the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, that that's where my values lie. But uh, these are the facts about certain things. I mean, I, I think I even demonstrated it here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm telling you that, look, <laughs> the left just believing these wild statistics about uh, about uh, about um, police killings against black people. I mean, you can you can relay the facts um, and, and have your own values and they don't necessarily have to. Um, one doesn't have to impact the other so much. Right. You can just have values and, and then the facts are here. And so um, to, to kind of get to this bias idea, I was telling my students, so, so, so that's how I conduct myself as the non, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I tell them who I am up front. But in that research methods class, I told them, I was like, look, if you are a researcher, if you're a scholar, or even if you become a writer or something like that, what matters is, is the, the process and the argument that you build. We have conflated bias with uh, a lack of truth. As if if you're biased, somehow you can't, you know, just because you vote Republican, somehow you can't produce something that isn't of value and of worth and isn't saying anything about the world. And so I was telling them in that class, it's a research methods class, so we're talking about how to do research, that if you follow the the process that we believe uh, that we've developed over decades and even centuries of producing reliable and valid information. If you follow that process, it doesn't matter what what your biases are. Uh, what you produce is useful. Hmm. Um, and then, and then the person who is reading it or consuming it, they have to look at that with their values. So I can read something that a conservative produces, and um, okay, yeah, I, I know they're, they're going to ask certain questions and and want to frame things in a certain way, but that's okay. That's what they want to do. They're conservatives. <laughs> and then I, I, I read the arguments in there. Uh, I look at the facts. And, and if if the conclusion logically comes from the facts, then okay, they've made us an argument. Maybe because of the way that they the, the issue, the question that they ask uh, is not interesting to me. And so I, I don't necessarily believe it, or even if they have a point that needs to be made, my values are such that I still want to look at it in a different way and I still want to push in another direction, then um, uh, then that's fine. 
you briefly spoke about disparity in sentencing. Can you explain a little bit on what that is and what's the state of that in the American community? So it's pretty clear that that uh, that black people and Hispanics, uh, people of color, you know, I say people of color, I think I'm going to start saying that because um, this doesn't necessarily apply, um, as far as I know, to Asian, um, um, specifically Indian, Korean, uh, people who, who are Asian immigrants <clears throat> who came uh, willingly. Uh, they, they tend to have very, very good social outcomes. Whereas uh, some Asian populations that haven't come uh, willingly, like maybe they were refugees or they're from uh, the Pacific Islands or Hawaii or something, they may have outcomes that are similar to other people of color, but not um, Asian immigrants, not not really. So, so maybe I should just say black and brown. So uh, the, the data is pretty clear that black and brown people who get into the criminal justice system, uh, uh, or I should say, um, who are sentenced for something, they get harsher, more harsh sentences than people who are white. They're, they're even, um, if, it's a, if it's a murder case where the death penalty is an option for the judge, they get the death penalty more often than white. And that is uh, just a stark reality. I mean, there's, I, I haven't seen anything, there, there is some, um, you know, there, there could be some variance in the, the killings by, by police of black and white. But when it comes to the sentencing, it's 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 pretty clear uh, that um, that that black people and and brown people are sentenced more harshly. This actually gets back to the algorithm point. Um, so okay, if we are moving towards using algorithms for uh, sentencing, and um, uh, people are against that for the very same reason that they're against using it for policing, um, it may embed some racist ideas. Okay, but I think I would rather have an algorithm that um, at least I can see more so than a judge who thinks that he's being, um, who's he thinks he's not being biased and he ends up saying, okay, well, you know, the maximum penalty here for, for, for a white person, the maximum penalty here is uh, five years in jail. So, okay, I'm gonna give you three. And uh, in a lot of uh, cases, judges do have that discretion. And then a black person comes up and he says, okay, the maximum penalty is five. I'm going to give you five. Uh, you are a danger to society. Um, enjoy your time in prison, you know, and, and knocks mm -hmm. down the gavel. And so I I, I would much rather, and, and the judge may think that he's he's not biased. He's impartial, right? And so, um, in fact, I think there was a study I read recently where um, they looked at um, when, what time of day a, a sentence was carried out. I wish I had that reference. What, what time of day a sentence was carried out? And apparently when it's near lunchtime or at the end of the day, judges are more harsh in their sentencing. Oh my God. <laughs> Which I thought was amazing. But I have to I have to look at, so I'm, I'm saying this in real time. I didn't prepare to talk about that. I have to go and find that study because it is something worth talking about. Hmm. <laughs> but in any case, but in any case, uh, so so there's there's these biases. And so an, an algorithm can help deal with that. I don't think we should rely solely on an algorithm, but I think if we have a something out there transparent that says, look, okay, this is the average sentence. Um, people who um, have this criminal history, they're more likely to do something, less likely to do something, and let's lose that, use that to make a decision about how much time we give them for this crime they've committed. I think that would be uh, much better. 
Yeah, because so, it is it is a very biased system. Yeah. So so if a judge is hangry or tired, he could have literally ruined someone's life. <laughs> yes, it's kind of it's kind of weird for me to to say because it sounds astounding, right? Mm. And so it would be it would be better if I had um, the study uh, in front of me or anything. I, I didn't think about um, I wasn't planning on talking about it, but yes, I absolutely uh, remember that that study. And yeah, uh, it's just because they're, they're human beings. So maybe they're grumpy. I mean, look, you had a, a argument with your um, spouse the night before. You come in and you're upset. And you might take it out in in the courtroom, and you don't think you're doing that, but you are. Hmm. I imagine as a professor, if um, they did something with me in in terms of uh, grading papers, uh, qualitative like writing and something. If I'm in a good mood, I might give higher <laughs> grades. If I'm in a bad mood, I might give slightly lower. I don't know. I mean, I would I would hate to to be a part of that study because they may show that. But but I mean, we're we're human beings, and so those mm. things do happen. How do you see the relationship between law enforcement, community, and communities, particularly in regards to trust and accountability? Then, because doesn't it change everything uh, when it comes to like because you know police and the law and the justice system is supposed to be something that's unbiased and you trust them but like all of these things have stripped away from that so now people don't trust them yeah that that's a that's a big problem we, we have a problem in the united states with trust in all of our institutions at this point uh media uh criminal justice system legal system uh political system but um yeah that that is that is uh something that's very difficult uh we don't it's Police have tried and are trying to do a, a sort of community policing model where instead of taking the approach that, okay, we are we are here to find the criminals. And so they just go around looking, uh, you know, on patrols, looking for crime. They're being a, like a more proactive and getting to know uh, citizens and being more present in the community, not only uh, to, to deal with uh, uh, crime, but but also to be a, a presence where someone can, uh, citizens can communicate with them and ask them questions and whatnot. And maybe that's a way at a local level to deal with the, the lack of trust, because there is a lack of trust, especially in poor uh, communities and policing of color uh, uh, and um, communities, black and brown communities. I also think that over time, because there will be a change in our, our system. Uh, I see it coming. It's just going to take a little bit. When that change comes, and people no longer feel that police are going to stop them, rough them up, tell them to turn around, put their hands behind their back, or ask them to, to, to um, lay face down on the ground while they check their car, or this type of thing. You know, they change the way that they deal with them. Then that will also increase the trust. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, police's own... The, our, the, the uh, institution of police, they've created a lot of that mistrust. And so... Um, in time, I think it'll get a little bit better, but it's it's difficult right now. What is the overall impact of mass incarceration on individuals, families, even communities? Because I know there's a lack of trust and accountability, but how does it impact over time? Does it like, I mean, you, you're on ground there. What? How do you see it changing? So it's going down. We, um, a lot of this is because we we went through a war on drugs in the 80s, uh, crime rate, uh, Mars, um, our prison population started to increase in the 70s and then shot up dramatically in the 80s. And that was because we were getting tough on drugs and drug trafficking. And so people who were selling drugs, they, they could, they're, they're nonviolent, right? But they were caught with drugs. And so they were put in the prison system. 
And that's primarily why it, it, it swelled. And so now we're moving away from that and we're not putting uh, people in prison as much. And also people aren't, I mean, the it's, it's not like it was in the eighties where there was a crack crack epidemic and there were so many opportunities for, for people to sell drugs and make a little money on the side. That has changed a lot. There's still drugs, drug issues in this country, but not like that. And so the opportunities for people to be put in prison are less. And also uh, we've changed the way that we do um, policing and we don't put people in jail for those longer periods of time in prison. Okay. So you're asking about the um, the impacts in communities. Well, look, you're taking a, a wage earner out of, out of um, a community. Generally it's men, generally it's young men. So, so, so you're taking away people who would have started families, or if they started families, they can't help raise them. Uh, you, you take them out of the labor market, and you also make it such that if you have a felony, so um, jail time is, if you go to jail, it's from zero to one years, and so certain crimes, you get jail time. Mm. And then uh, more serious crimes, you get prison time that's over a year. Uh, if you're sentenced for over a year, and so if you if you have a a, a felony against you or a prison time, then uh, you have to state that when you go to apply for a job, and so people go, well, I, I don't want to hire an ex-con uh, or or an ex-felon, and so they have a hard time getting work. Um, it's just a drain on communities, and if that's concentrated, then uh, that community really has nothing to to to, to stand on. It becomes a it becomes a community where there's a lot of unemployment, um, crime probably continues, uh, and it's, it's just overall damaging. I'm actually not in favor of being too lenient on people who are selling drugs, um, but I am I am in favor of maybe a kind of restitution model where, okay, you know, we've caught you doing this, you know, that's against the law, so you have a fine and you've got community service. Okay, you've done that. Now, now you can re-enter into uh, society uh, on equal terms with everyone else. And that's not what we've gotten. And so it further depresses, that's not what we have. And so it further depresses those communities. You just got a lot of people who can't be productive citizens. Hmm. And how do you feel uh, the criminal justice addresses uh, or punishes white collar crimes compared to street crime? Because there are a lot of people who are like swindling money, like a lot, millions out of communities, leaving people coming back to work after retirement and then they just get a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I don't know about that so much. Um or, or at least what the what the the patterns and, and and data are around white collar crime. I'm not entirely sure. I mean I'm 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 sort of with you in that my sense is that um people who commit these sort of financial crimes or white collar crimes uh, are treated more leniently. Um but I but I don't know the extent uh, to which that is happening. I don't. I don't know. Um, I mean, my sense is the rationale would be that okay, violent crime is treated differently than uh, white collar crime. It's not only about the race of the individual, although it is the case that uh, uh, street crimes are are generally um, in uh, black and brown communities concentrated, black and brown communities and poor communities. Whereas white collar crime is not, you know, it's it's a it's a white, it's a wealthy kind of crime, or at least middle class crime, I should say. How and so you... there's some arguments. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Sorry, go ahead. Now I was gonna say so. So there's some arguments that there's some there's a there's some a racialized aspect to it, and a class aspect. But I think it's also the fact that uh, 
people just have a gut reaction to violence. And so they're more likely to treat that harshly and, and also um, investigate that more. And what about the ongoing debate over the death penalty impacting the criminal justice system? What are your thoughts on that? We're moving away from that, which is nice. <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of states in the in the South um, where I'm from and where I'm based now, where they they still have this this um, where where they're there's still strong support for the death penalty. But in many states, uh, they've repealed it. In states that still have the death penalty, they put so many protections in place. Um, whereas a person can appeal or they'll stay the execution until the amount of people who have been killed by the death penalty has gone down. Hmm. I don't know. I don't have the, the the stats in front of me, but it has gone down and that's good. Um, and so, you know, maybe over time, uh, Southern states, may, they get with the rest of the world and, um, and uh, stop killing people. It's crazy. I mean, because if you're, if, what if you're wrong? Hmm. Right. I mean, I, I would rather, you know, I, I would rather have someone get away with a crime. Maybe other people won't agree, but I would rather several people get away with a crime than killing one innocent person. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I'm against the death penalty. It's just, and we know that people have been killed when they were supposed to. Like, we, like, like we understand. So, so there's this project, uh, this death penalty uh, project. That's uh, that we have in the United States, where you, these lawyers are work. It's called the sentencing project, yeah. Mm -hmm. Where these lawyers work uh, on their own time to um, to go back and look at uh, the cases of people who have been convicted of murder and are sentenced to death, and and they consistently find that okay, a lot of times the person is uh, is completely innocent, and so if if you're finding cases like this. Where you've got this is a, the sentencing project is not that large, you know, it's like a couple of uh, or or a handful of lawyers across the country, I believe. But if, but if you if you've got this this crack collection of people who are finding this, I mean, can you imagine if if we looked as a nation systematically at the people who are on death uh, on death row, how many people we would find who actually did not commit that crime and we were, mm. we were going to put them to death? So, yeah. You spoke briefly about people reintegrating to society with like a record and then they're not, they find it hard to get a job. Can you discuss uh, the role of rehabilitation and the reentry programs uh, that are there or are, are, are promoting successful reintegration in society for people who've been to prison? I can't say too much. Um, I, I know that there are some piecemeal efforts um, and hopefully in the future things will, will, um, we'll start to understand more about or, or implement policies that will help aid um, uh, people who are transitioning from prison back to um, civilian life. But I, I don't actually know uh, what those are. So there's not, nothing that's there through the justice system to rehabilitate anyone. Like it's like you're done. Okay, go figure it out your own. Your own. <laughs> yes, that's it. You got, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is quite amazing. But but that's a historical legacy of uh, being of being tough on crime and don't give them anything. Hmm. I mean, uh, there, there are some there are some, and it's a, it's a winning political strategy. I mean, I, I remember politicians who were saying, "Look, these criminals." Are have like weights and watching television and why are we giving them this? We need to remove this from prisons, you know. This 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 type of argument and people will 
on a gut level, people go, yes, I understand this. Why, why do they have cable in the prison or something? And I don't. My, my son doesn't have um, training equipment. Why, why should these people in prison have it? And so, and so we, we just were, we got very, very uh, punitive hmm. and callous over time. And I think we're trying to walk that back now. Um, but, but, yeah. but we have to see it from the perspective of you are rehabilitating somebody who's been usually people who choose a life of crime, not necessarily are choosing it because they have a choice. Uh, they are put in a situation where they have no other way of like fending for themselves. So if you give them the reform that they need, the structure that they need to be able to come back and be productive to society would be giving them the allowances that they didn't have before. Okay, so I am a Republican congressman, and I'm going to say, do you want to put your tax money into helping this person? <laughs> this person is a is a criminal. You want to you want you want your tax money going to providing homes for them. You want your tax money going to providing training for them. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a very difficult thing to sell. But I would say yes because what are the chances of him improving from that? Or you yeah. just leave him high and dry? <laughs> that's very logical <laughs> yeah i yeah. wish i wish they thought like that <laughs> yeah. uh what, what is the impact of mental health impacting individuals and communities and then criminal justice itself um well i mean there is certainly a a link between uh mental health issues and crime um but um, as far as uh, some sort of, you know, clear relationship or some trends that are worth uh, talking about, I don't I don't know. Of them. So, I mean, is there a, a system set in place to help people with mental health issues? Because, yes, there have been cases where ah, there's shootings, there's been shootings. Mm -hmm. And then there's someone then we find out that the person actually struggled with mental health issues, be it like, you know, suicidal thoughts or they were bullied uh, or actual mental issues. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to someone going out and like killing 10 people. I see. Oh, I see. So so there are there are two trends here that that, that sort of push back against people seeking mental health uh, mm -hmm. help. Um, maybe even maybe even three. But OK, so I guess I'll kind of talk through it and see how it plays out in my head. Mm -hmm. So the first is that there's, there's a. a still in the United States, this this culture that, okay, you know, just kind of, you know, push through it. Um, there, there's still, especially in working class and um, uh, in poor communities, this idea that, oh, mental health, what are you talking about? You know, you're just feeling bad. Um, but there is no culture or expectation of, um, of going to a therapist or whatnot to deal with mental health. Or if you're a parent or a loved one, um, getting someone in your family to go to a mental uh, a therapist or a counselor or something. Um, and I have to say, I, I used to be that way. I mean, it took me a long time to realize that it might be beneficial for me to go and speak to someone about the issues that I have. So there's a, there's, there's a cultural uh, part of this. A second part is that, well, it's expensive. So, mm -hmm. so, so we don't have a, <laughs> we, we don't have a universal healthcare here. And so if you're going to pay for these things, you, you need to have insurance which a lot of folks don't have, or if you're going to pay out of pocket, it can be very, very pricey. The The nice thing is um, uh, people are realizing this and there are these uh, new applications now where someone can get uh, a lot of, um, can get therapy sessions electronically, uh, telehealth, 
and which I which I tried uh, myself as well, right? And it's much it's less expensive, and 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 maybe eventually that will become something that people can go to. But first, there needs to be the cultural expectation that it is something you need to do, and we're not quite uh, there yet. You're right that a lot of those mass shootings are because people are dealing with a lot of mental health issues. With young men, it could be quite complicated because it could be mental health issues. It could also be a lot of social isolation, building up resentment about maybe not winning in society and uh, going down these rabbit hole forums where they're reading, where they're learning about these, they're justifying or they're explaining their problems by blaming it on women or minority groups. So then you got this kid who may be dealing with mental health problems, uh, who then you know takes a gun and goes out and and lashes out against the world. So uh, it, it can be a bit more complex than 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 just uh, depression or, or something like that. But um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we need to change our culture. We need we need to make it easier for us to get those things. What other systems can be placed to help, like you know, mitigate issues like this? Like I understand culturally, we should be open to the idea of asking mm -hmm. for help, getting help. But does community play a big role? Because I know there are a lot of systems, especially like even in Dubai, where there are especially boys, where, you know, you get into a football community and then you play with your friends and it's there's this camaraderie that is there. And that just helps you talk over your things, uh, your issues, uh, winning small battles with yourself, challenging yourself and then overcoming them makes you stronger overall. Is there something that is more community based, which can help children with mental health issues? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I never really thought of it in, in terms of kids, you know, being a part of a sports club or, or or something, being a part of a community that that they can they can talk things out. <clears throat> so, I mean, we do have a culture here of of young people being in in uh, organiz um, sports clubs or groups or Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, these types of things. So um, that's kind of already there. I, I think the issue would be for the person who is a little bit older um, and maybe at this point in their life, you know, they, they don't, they haven't built up a lot of a strong friendship network and they're not playing sports or, or, or they're not a part of some uh, high school uh, group or organization, what to do with them. It's exacerbated, I think, in, in the United States by the fact that, uh, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves in having a, a nuclear family. Like that's the goal. Like you want mm. to, you want to get married and then you want to go out, leave your home. At least it used to be this way. I think millennials are, are pushing, are, are changing this trend, but mm. this used to be the American dream, right? You so you get, you get married and you, you, you move away from um, your, your, your family, uh, your extended kin and whatnot. And you start, you know, a new fiefdom on your own someplace mm -hmm. else. Okay, well, okay, people are doing that, but it also means that now you've distanced yourself a little bit from people who you can talk with. You may, maybe you move, we're a very transient culture, so we can move, we move from city to city. I've lived in like five different cities. When, when you do that, you end up having to, to rebuild friendship networks. Um, and uh, we are just a very lonely country as adults. Uh, in, in fact, our, our, the size of our domicile has increased over time hmm. and the and the number of friends that we have has decreased over time <laughs> it's really it's really unfortunate um that that we're that way and so i mean you know some of that is is about just 
uh, American culture and trends. So, I mean, that, that's very hard to, to deal with. It, it really is. Uh, you've got a lot of people who are living alone um, or even if they have a partner, it's just them and their partner. And so who are you going to talk to? Who, who can you tell your intimate secrets to? And who can you confide in? It can be quite difficult. What do you think about and how does psychedelics play a role in this? I know there's a lot of uh, changes and reforms, especially with like the way uh, psychedelics are addressed in the U.S., but uh, psychedelics also helps bring communities together. It changes the way you see things. What about police taking MDMA or psychedelics to help them change the way they because like you said they've come from backgrounds of being in the army and then they have this way of like the way they deal with crime is very different would that change if that was the case i don't know that is an amazing <laughs> question <laughs> i've never even thought of that i don't know i don't know i didn't even know that there was a that it that it would it would bring people together as you can tell i don't i don't take uh psychedelics <laughs> but i did i didn't know that um that was a component of it a, a community building so I, I i don't know i don't know okay and i'm gonna switch gears a little bit um what what do you th what are your thoughts on now uh utah not no longer paying for transgender treatment like what are your thoughts on that in general like why was it there why they were were paying for it and why have they changed and how do you feel about it paying for transgender treatment so like you know kids who want to change their gender or mm -hmm. like someone who's even older so it was something that they were kind of supporting in such a way so it's like now we're not going to fund that anymore okay so i'm, I'm not quite sure um if that's how it so okay i don't know if there was you mean like the the, the healthcare service would would yes. fund? Uh, okay i see i see hmm. um so uh the narrative around this is not necessarily about the funding or not, at least in the United States. It's more about whether or not we should allow hmm. um, young people to have gender affirming treatments. I, I guess that's the positive way of, of, of talking about it, hmm. which would include a, a, a range of, of treatments, you know, from just, you know, counseling hmm. uh, to um, ways of presenting oneself that conforms more to how you feel and then ultimately, and then also chemical uh, treatments, and then and then ultimately some types of surgeries. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. and so, uh, in a lot of states, they are now moving and have banned um, gender affirming treatment. I think primarily surgery, but also maybe treatment in general. Okay. Uh, my view on this is that one, um, we we don't know a lot about the the long term impacts of a young person having gender affirming, affirming treatment, especially uh, using the use of chemicals uh, uh, or, uh, or hormone therapy treatment, I guess is the best way of, of, of describing it, or of course, the, the actual surgery. So we don't know as much as we need to know about what happens 20, 25 years down the line. My, my sense is that uh, people are, are uh, the, the general understanding is that on balance, uh, this is a, a better solution um, rather than forcing them, young people uh, to, uh, or people in general. I mean, I'm, I'm saying young people, but I think I think in some states they're banning it up to 20, uh, 25 or something like that. But in any case, so um, we don't know enough, even if the trend suggests that this is something, this is a, 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 an acceptable treatment 
and it would deal with the the issues that young people face. Uh, but um, we don't know enough. So 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 my view would be, look, if, if someone wants to do that and it's a family decision, they should be able to do it. I wouldn't mm -hmm. ban it. But at the same time, we do need to know more. We really do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, just like with any treatment, you know, mm -hmm. we need to do as much study on it as, as possible um, so that people can make informed decisions. What books would you recommend? Books, articles, even resources for someone who's interested in learning about sociology of criminal justice? Hmm. Well, a classic. Um, it's quite quite old now, and I don't know. So many references in it may not necessarily fit. But but for a, someone who is uh, uh, maybe going into a graduate program, they they might read. A book by a sociologist named C. Wright Mills. It's called The Sociological Imagination. Hmm. I like it because he, he makes the point that um, many of the personal troubles that we have are public issues. And the task of the sociologist is to, is to get people to see that what is a personal trouble is a public one. So your unemployment isn't necessarily, which is a personal problem, isn't necessarily simply because you're not working hard enough or you're not smart enough or you're not clever enough to get a job. It could be that there are changes in the economy which are leading to more people like you not finding work. Hmm. And and so uh, that book was a uh, was a revelation to me. Um, it's a, it's an old one and I don't I don't know if it's it's something that it's considered a classic. I, I don't know if that's something that's being that's being given to grad student, graduate students as much, but it is a core insight of sociology, this uh, personal private connection, uh, or I should say private and public connection, or even personal and public. <laughs> 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 it's a lot of bees in there, but, but, yeah. but you get the point. Yeah. And, and, so, and so, yeah, yeah, that, that's one that I would recommend. As, as far as the uh, policing, I talked a lot about, uh, well, we talked a lot about policing. And one book that I think is, was very eye-opening to me is uh, The End of Policing by Alex Batali. And he he's a bit more to the left than me. He, he believes that uh, no matter what, uh, police will always be problematic in a society and, and we should rid ourselves of police and find other ways of, of controlling crime. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that final conclusion, mm -hmm. but the evidence that he brings about... Um, so you can say he's biased, but he's saying truthful things, kind of getting mm. back to what we're saying. Yeah. Um, um, but, he, but, he, but he presents the, the facts on the ground about what happens, how, how it is that police are so violent towards people and especially people in black and brown communities. It's a really good read. He's, I think he's writing a second edition now. Where can people find your work? So... Um, on Twitter, well, I have a website, uh, roderickgram.com, and I guess that would be where you can start. I have a YouTube channel where I do something similar to you and that I kind of talk to people, uh, even though now I'm moving towards just kind of communicating sociology. And then you can find me on Twitter where I do a lot of tweeting at Roderick Graham. You'll probably see neighborhood sociologists. That's kind of my online persona. Uh, persona. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me.